You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Hawkins, the co-director of the Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today we're talking about gender and sexuality, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Great. And we're going to get right into some uh, questions and definitions and pronouns and everything, so I wanted to first ask you to give me some background, remind me about the development of gender identity and sexuality, and and what age do children typically know their own gender and then also sexuality? Great question. So what we know from the literature around childhood development is that uh, gender identity development really starts to take hold between ages three and five years old. And some people feel like that's really early, mm-hmm. um, but it's right when the child's brain is coming together and understanding how, how relationships work, how people fit together, and how they fit into the world. Mm-hmm. So between three and five, there's a lot of language development as well. And that helps young people to be cued into their gender what gender expectations are in their family, what gender expectations are in maybe their daycare or their churches or their communities. And hearing that language around, yes, Janie, you're a girl. Yes, girls play with dolls. Or Joey, put down that doll. Only girls play with dolls. All of that language that happens so much between three and five years old is also what really solidifies a child's internal understanding of their gender identity. Mm-hmm. What we talk about is, does the child feel like it's a fit? Mm-hmm. The cues, the expectations, the language around how they feel in the world, or is it not a fit? Mm-hmm. So for a transgender child, it doesn't feel like a fit to be rewarded for girl things when Janie actually feels like a boy right. and vice versa. Right, great. And then there their understanding of their sexuality and their attraction to others, when does that start start to develop? So given the opportunity for for healthy development, so presuming that there's good sleeping and good eating and good attachment going on, Mm -hmm. between ages four and six. So it can overlap a little bit with a young person starting to identify and understand their gender whether or not that fits with the sex they were assigned at birth, Mm -hmm. as well as understanding how people connect to each other around relationships. Mm -hmm. Is the child seeing moms and moms, dads and dads, Mm -hmm. dads and moms, Mm -hmm. all variations of that. And little ones, even between ages four and six, can start to have a sense of the way they might want to fit with another person in the world. Mm -hmm. And in this kind of toddler preschool age that you're describing when gender is developing, there are kids who go through phases of sort of gender non-conforming with kind of stereotypical um, tomboy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and parents sometimes are uh, 
wondering, is this a phase? Is this some, them kind of trying out these different genders? Or is this something that's going to be more permanent? And so what do you say to the parents who are worried about that when their child seems to not conform with the gender that, that maybe the parent ascribes to them? So mm-hmm. in these young, young children, what, what advice can we offer? So for parents who express some concern, I usually take a step back and ask where they learned about gender and how they came to understand gender rules and gender expectations. Mm-hmm. That typically will give me a little bit of a foundation of, of you know, what were those influences for the parents? Mm-hmm. Were those influences really rigid? Or were they part of a, a church or a faith or, or a culture where there are not a lot, there's not a lot of flexibility around gender and Mm -hmm. gender roles. It's helpful as somebody who wants parents to grow to understand their children better because then I know kind of where to start. Mm -hmm. What we tend to look at is that children try on all sorts of things, hats, boots, you know, you name it, they'll try it on and see if they like it, see if they like it personally, and also see if they like the response they get from other people. Mm -hmm. So describing to parents that gender exploration is just like any other exploration. It's like trying on different colors. And where the parents start to get concerned, I will also ask, what are you most worried about? Mm -hmm. What are you most worried about if Joey is seen playing with a Barbie doll? Mm And that gets at some of the challenge. So a parent might say, I'm worried that somebody's going to pick on my child. Mm -hmm. So that's a great place to start a conversation. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Understanding what what their concern is driven by. Exactly. And so let's talk about toys since you mentioned that. So some parents are very intentional about buying gendered toys for their child. So my daughter was born a girl, I want to buy her a doll. Mm -hmm. And some parents are very intentional about doing the opposite. So Mm -hmm. I want to buy my daughter only trucks and trains and um, she will never have a doll. Mm -hmm. So is there there a right way? Does it matter um, if my child identifies um, with a certain gender? Does the toy that I give them influence that at all? No, it doesn't. And and that's a great question and a, a great hypothesis that toys can be leading um, one way or another, gender-wise. Um, also, the clothing can be leading. Mm-hmm. You know, if a boy wears pink, that's going to be, you know, move him in a direction. And actually, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The way we react to our children is the most influencing factor out of mm-hmm. all of that. Right. So when a young person picks up, regardless of their gender, picks up a doll or puts on a blue versus a pink outfit, mm-hmm. how the people who matter to that child reacts will be the influence, mm-hmm. not the toy. Right, great. And that you can use toys in so many different ways, which is the other way that I tell parents mm-hmm. sometimes, like my daughter's doll could be an astronaut, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be um, in used in a gendered way either. So kids will use toys however they want. They're very creative. Exactly, exactly. Good advice. Great. So we're talking about gender and um, let's talk about actually defining what transgender means because we talked about what gender is but um what does that term transgender mean and uh when you have kiddos who define as transgender when do they typically start to use that that label and and understand what that means so transgender as a general term refers to an individual who um was assigned a a sex at birth, typically in our society that's male or female, Mm -hmm. and they don't 
align with all of the rules and expectations that are part of what's assigned to that sex at birth. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're assigned male at birth, the expectation is that you're going to perform masculinely or that you're going to uh, fit with the expectations of maleness in your family or in your church or school or community. So somebody who is transgender doesn't have that alignment, doesn't mm -hmm. have that exact fit. Mm -hmm. So some folks will look at transgender as being the opposite. So a boy who identifies fully as a female or a girl who identifies fully as a male. Mm -hmm. It also includes those folks who don't align with either gender. Mm -hmm. So it could be somebody who is gender non-binary or agender. Mm -hmm. um, so anywhere along the gender spectrums mm -hmm. of identity. So whereas we used to think transgender meant one, ad one additional term to right. the three, male, female, transgender, right. it's really an umbrella term that overarches many, many different identities between male and female. Mm -hmm. Great. So it's good to know that it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to everyone so that we can't use it as one all-encompassing word, but um, an umbrella term. Correct. It's a great word to continue the conversation. Great. So when a young person says to me, I'm transgender, I usually follow that up with, can you tell me what that means for you? Right. Um, because some assigned female at birth, somebody could identify as male, as mm -hmm. boy, as genderqueer, as mm -hmm. agender, a whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. Great. What I love about that sentence that you've given us to use in our clinics is that I don't have to guess and get it wrong, mm -hmm. and I don't have to look foolish and try to figure it out in front of my patient, but they can tell me their definition mm -hmm. and tell me what it means. So and you make me look better in clinic, which I like. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a team, team yeah. effort, yes. Well, and young people want to teach us about them. They don't right. want to always be um, presumed to be known, mm -hmm. like, oh, you've I've mentioned something to my medical provider and that medical provider just turns and types it into a keyboard and makes an assumption about what that means. Mm -hmm. Young people sometimes do want to tell you about who they really are. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while we're talking about how to talk to young people, a lot of us have um, been comfortable talking about sexuality with our adolescent patients, but we don't often talk about gender. Um, and so how do we start a conversation about talking about gender when we're talking with our adolescent patients alone and doing the rest of our kind of sexual health and mental health assessments? Um, so some of the language that I'm encouraging healthcare providers to integrate into their practice is sim simple questions with open-ended answer mm -hmm. opportunities. So the simple question being, so Linda, you know, you're you're assigned female at birth and there's an F on your birth certificate. How does that fit for you? How mm -hmm. does that feel for you? Mm -hmm. What's it like being a girl at school? What's it like being a, a girl in your family? Mm -hmm. What that really opens up is a conversation that can meet many patient needs, mm -hmm. whether your Linda feels very comfortable being a girl whether Linda's worried about certain puberty changes that could be happening, as well as if Linda really identifies as Larry. You've just created an opening that says, I'm here to listen if mm -hmm. this doesn't feel like a fit for you. Mm -hmm. So that's some language that many providers from six years old up to 16 are finding lead to some great conversations. Mm -hmm. Great. And let's talk about pronouns, because we've been talking around it a little bit um, already, but how do we use language in clinic 
that's welcome, inclusive, and yet specific to what the patient wants us to use? The best thing to do is to ask. Mm -hmm. The best thing to do is to not presume that because somebody identifies as female, they want she, her pronouns, or males want he, him pronouns. Mm -hmm. By saying, can you tell me what pronouns feel best for you? Mm you really open up the language and open it up to a young person saying, actually, I don't identify with either gender and I prefer they, them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much gendered language in our society and pronouns tend to be the loudest and most frequently used. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when it's wrong and it doesn't fit for a young person, it becomes really uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. unwanted and those are the kids who might not want to come back to the practice because Mm -hmm. they're being either misnamed or mispronounced. Mm -hmm. And I think for providers who are afraid that they're going to get it wrong and they know they're going to get it wrong and they're going to mess up here and there, a strategy, and tell me if I'm right about this, might just be saying, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to try, but I'm probably going to get it wrong, just correct me, Mm -hmm. being open about that it's hard maybe for you or it's new for you is better than, um, you know, to be honest and open about that process. Yes. And and being apologetic in advance mm-hmm. is really helpful, but making sure that we don't use that as a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And so two of the recommendations I, I make is if you really are having trouble, especially with they, them as a pronoun for an individual, mm-hmm. um, you can use their name. Right. So when referring to the person, by saying Joey or Janie in place of a pronoun, you'll always get that right. Mm-hmm. The other is apologizing. And there are two ways of apologizing, one that makes it about us and the mm-hmm. other that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So the one that makes it about us is, oh, I'm so sorry, but I've known you for so long as a girl. And so saying he is really hard for me. Mm. That's about us. Right. That's not an apology. That's right. an excuse. Mm-hmm. Being able to say, I'm so sorry, I just made a mistake. Let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. And then moving on, that's right. an apology. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a very good point. Let's move a little bit um, down the road. So we've kind of gone over some of the basics of language, but once we have um, a transgender youth in our practice who's maybe thinking about the next steps as puberty is coming, Understanding that this is a very personal choice and an individualized choice about whether or not they pursue hormonal therapy, how common is it and when should we be referring patients to have those discussions? So you can refer patients to a gender specialist at any time and within the gender clinic we see folks um, as young as four and five all the way up to 21. For little ones we tend to meet with more parents Mm -hmm. individually uh, to just give good advice about parenting transgender and gender Mm -hmm. non-binary children but medically when we're talking about when we can make some interventions to help a young person continue growing and thriving in the gender identity that they um, identify with is uh, around 10 or 2 so Mm -hmm. right before puberty takes full hold that's a time when when our physicians on the team would recommend the puberty blocking hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. And then when we're looking at gender affirming hormone therapy, there's not really a specific age, mm-hmm. but what we look at with the timing of that is we look at actually four things and they all start with mm-hmm. P, so it okay. helps me remember them. Mm-hmm. So 
what's best for the patient. Again, mm -hmm. very individualized, but it's even bigger than that. So what's right for the patient? Mm -hmm. Where are the parents right. in their understanding and support for what we as a team determine is best for the patient? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're right next to each other and it's very easy. Sometimes they're very far apart. So we need to find ways to bring those two things together. Mm -hmm. Then we look at where are peers. If we're going to be medically supporting or medically engineering puberty for these kiddos, we want them to be a little bit in the middle. Mm -hmm. So we don't want the first kid with a beard or the last kid with breasts. Right. So we're able to look at the peer group and really try to fit that in. Mm -hmm. And then the last P is what's best practice. So we look mm -hmm. at the Endocrine Society guidelines. We look at mm -hmm. the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we see with all of these first three P's, the patient, the parents, and the peers, are we still working within the guidelines of best practice? Mm -hmm. Great, that's very a good point about the, the peer group too. And we think about that a lot. I mean, puberty is hard for every child, mm -hmm. I think, and in some ways. So thinking about where they are, where they are in that, that spectrum among their um, community is yeah, important. Exactly. How can we help, when we're talking about peers too, how can we help support our transgender patients who may not be accepted in their community by teachers, um, church members, other people that they may interface with outside of their family? So even if their family um, is supportive and they're in the same place as them, as you mentioned, what about everybody else? How can we help them navigate the places that they need to go in their lives in a safe and inclusive way? I think first and foremost is just acknowledging that that challenge might exist mm -hmm. and opening up that dialogue with a transgender patient, asking what what communities they do interface with throughout the week and how how they've had the what those experiences have been like, how that's been for them. Mm -hmm. And then I feel the biggest role we have as providers at a leading children's hospital in this community is speaking out as leaders in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, churches trust us, mm -hmm. schools trust us, community organizations trust us because our job is to do what's in the best interest of the child and also we know what is most innovative and best at the healthcare practice. Mm -hmm. So by us stepping out and talking and sharing that Children's Hospital of Philadelphia supports and believes in and acknowledges transgender children and youth. It really legitimizes mm -hmm. this important patient population and that carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight. And sitting down with people who want to be supportive but aren't quite sure how mm -hmm. is also a really powerful conversation to have as a physician here at CHOP or as um, a care provider here at CHOP. Being able to partner with all of those organizations for meaningful ways, and especially around something that is maybe new to them, like mm -hmm. transgender identity. Right, and I know I do some work in the international adoption world, and we sometimes will do outreach to schools and trainings. So like you mentioned, mm -hmm. these um, individuals that our patients interface with, they may want to be supportive, they just don't know how, and this is new to them. And so helping them also with the language and understanding things. So. Um, I think your program does that as well mm -hmm. for this uh, and that you reach out to school. So it's great to know that there's that option too, that we can do some training and some education in the community to help, help them where, um, where they're at. Exactly, exactly. And just, you know, many people in the community come to CHOP to learn about 
asthma and immunizations and the mm-hmm. best care practices in a lot of different ways. And right. so speaking out and being out about our care for transgender children is also part of that as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously at CHOP, we are um, using EPIC, which I know a lot of other listeners who might be in other uh systems might use another electronic medical record, but we've developed a preferred name in EPIC. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so we ran into many, many problems where uh, young people would share with us their preferred name and we would have it under the family note or an EPIC post-it or just written on a piece of paper on our desk. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, that was failing as a system. Um, so it was really um, the patient and parent complaints about our failures around being able to organize preferred name that resulted in a, a systemic change to our EPIC system. Mm-hmm. Um, so having it now listed in the medical record, um, electronic medical record, and having it populate in the places where it's important for the patient visit as much as possible mm-hmm. is what we've moved towards. So our face sheets now have the preferred name. Mm-hmm. Um, many of our documents internally can populate with the preferred name. Mm-hmm. Um, there are limitations, and we apologize for those limitations with the patients and families, where the name isn't legally changed with the insurance company, Mm -hmm. those documents are generated with the name that is known to the insurance company. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's probably the the largest change that has created the largest amount of good Mm -hmm. when somebody comes into gender clinic and they put in their preferred name and then they go to the emergency department and that team uses their preferred name. Mm -hmm. It's... It's amazing yeah. um, in, in just creating that open door of care and support and saying we are all working as a team mm-hmm. and so we all see you and mm-hmm. we all acknowledge who you are and how you want to be referred to in the world. Great. I love that. Let's talk about shifting gears a little bit, something um, not as positive, but um, transgender youth are at higher risk for things like depression. What other risks do we need to be aware of and how can we screen um, these children and adolescents to keep them safe? What should we be looking out for? So some of the things that we're finding um, a high comorbidity rates among transgender kiddos are um, GI issues. Mm -hmm. So um, upset stomachs, um, challenges with with eating and worrying about going to the bathroom can really cause some difficulty. Mm -hmm. And so uh, stomach pains and and difficulty in that area should be mm-hmm. thought about a little differently when it comes to gender, mm-hmm. as well as um, disordered eating. Mm-hmm. So that's another emerging category that we're looking at nationally among transgender young people who are um, were, are being identified from within disordered eating clinics or mm-hmm. from within hospitalizations for malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, these are ways that many very creative transgender young people try to cope with having a body that is not the body they wish to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some areas to keep an eye out for in particular. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I love some of the research that's coming out of the University of Washington with Christina Olson's work looking longitudinally at, at transgender children and youth who are supported in their family systems. And we're actually seeing that family acceptance is the best medicine for transgender children Mm -hmm. because when you have family acceptance, almost all of those 
comorbidities completely wash away. Mm. And when compared to non-transgender peers in similar family constellations, mm -hmm. they actually show some even stronger resilience mm -hmm. and equal to less anxiety, less depression, and less mm -hmm. suicidality. So Super interesting. good things to keep an eye out for. Yeah. And then important things to raise is the awareness of family support as being one of the most important factors. Okay, good thing for any parents who are listening to this <laughs> <laughs> to keep in mind. And the especially nice thing I like to highlight about parent acceptance and family acceptance as the best medicine is that there's no copay <laughs> and right. you can't overdose on it. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's the best. Um, so what resources exist in the community and understanding that we probably have listeners from, um, diverse areas of the country, but for those who are listening in Philadelphia, where can we refer our trans patients in Philadelphia that might be looking for a community or other, um, resources that they, they might want from their peers, like peer groups and activities? So that's a very diverse question because Philadelphia is so diverse as well. So some of the, the key places online that I recommend for mm -hmm. all, I'll start with adults and parents mm -hmm. and providers, uh, a website, genderspectrum.org, okay. um, is a great national site that then tools down to local resources. Mm -hmm. Also the human rights campaign, hrc.org, mm -hmm. offers lots of great information for teachers, for providers, for parents, as well as for savvy teens mm -hmm. um, who are comfortable surfing the internet. Locally with, within our gender clinic, we offer lots of resources. Mm -hmm. uh, the Attic Youth Center is a great place for many uh, diversity among sexual orientation and gender identity for, uh, for teens. Um, and there's also the, um, the PFLAG groups that are mm -hmm. part of Philadelphia. Um, and the surrounding areas uh, are also really strong in having access to local resources. Mm -hmm. When there's issues going on within a school system or there's, there's challenges happening for, for young people, um, there's also Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, it's called Equality Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Equality Pennsylvania is an organization in the state that does a lot of advocacy and education and training for hospital systems as well as for schools. Mm, great. So it's good to hear that there are a lot nationally and also locally, uh, a lot of resources that we can use. Mm -hmm. And we know that your clinic is obviously a resource to us. So tell us how we can find you and how we can refer patients to your clinic. So you can look on the CHOP website, which is uh, www.chop.edu. And if you just put in the search tab, um, transgender, mm -hmm. you'll get to the Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic. Great. Uh, you can also email us at genderclinic, all smushed together, mm -hmm. at email.chop.edu. Great, now that we know where to find you, I'm sure you'll be seeing a lot more referrals coming from us soon. Thanks so much for sharing all this great information with us today, and I hope that everybody enjoyed listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.